WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Jim Banks announces his Senate bid, an attack on Mitch Daniels, plus a step towards universal school vouchers, and more. From the television studios at WFYI, it's Indiana Week in Review, the week ending January 20th, 2023. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. This week, 3rd District Congressman Jim Banks officially threw his hat into the ring for Indiana's U.S. Senate race, a seat opening up as incumbent Mike Braun runs for governor. WBOI's Tony Sandelman reports. Banks, who recently announced a plan to create a, quote, anti-woke caucus in the House, is basing much of his campaign announcement on, quote, stopping radical socialist Democrats from trying to change America. Banks is joining what could be a crowded Republican senatorial primary. Governor Eric Holcomb, Congresswoman Victoria Sparts, and former Governor Mitch Daniels are all possible contenders facing Banks. Mike Wolf is the acting director of the Andy Downs Center for Indiana Politics. He says given Banks' national profile and popularity among D.C. Republicans, the biggest challenge he'd face from that group would be Daniels. The thing about um, uh, former Governor Daniels is that uh, he's really well-liked in Washington, too. Uh, but from a different crowd, he's well-liked by the Washington media very much. Uh, and among many traditional Republicans in Washington, he's a very popular figure. Holcomb, Sparks, and Daniels have until February of 2024 to file for the race. How strong a contender is Jim Banks? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Chris Mitchum. John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers and Nikki Kelly, Editor-in-Chief of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Bureau Chief Brandon Smith. Andalini, even among rumored candidates, is Jim Banks the frontrunner? Well, there's no question that he's the darling of the radical right crazies in the Republican Party. I mean, he denied the fact that Joe Biden was elected president. He talked about the traitors who launched the insurrection on, in, on January 6th as if they were tourists just kind of touring Indiana, touring uh, uh, Washington. And the thing that really bothers me the most about him is that he's like the typical right-wing Republicans. They, they set up a straw man, okay, that doesn't exist, whether it's English as the native language or critical race theory or wokeism or what, what's the other thing, ESG or something where they're <laughs> there's no threat at all, but they conjure it up so that they can rally their base to fight this perceived threat and stay together against a common enemy that doesn't exist. And it works, though. Well, it, it may work, but it works among people who, frankly, are too ignorant to understand that they're being maneuvered, okay? And, and that may be enough to get him the Republican nomination for the Senate. The question is, is that enough to get him elected? I don't think it is, because he's not a worthy heir to Richard Lugar. When you look at the two of them and the records the two of them have, Nobody who voted for Richard Luger for all those years would be happy to have Jim Banks representing them. Well, Ann doesn't like him, so it sounds like he might be the front runner for the Senate Republican <laughs> primary. Well, I think right? he may be. 
I mean, he, he checks a lot of the boxes that you want to see from a statewide candidate. I mean, we've seen back in 2016, he has the potential to raise seven figures, which that kind of checks the money box. And if you add all of the relationships he's made in Washington, almost being elected to a, a big Republican leadership position, I think that really opens up the money aspect for him. But he also has the name recognition, again, referencing that uh, the leadership position that he almost got. And then even to Ann's point, I think a benefit of getting into the race first is you kind of get to set up camp about which side of the argument you want to be first. And we know what side of the camp he's in. He, I think in an op-ed he called Donald Trump the president of his lifetime. Um, you know, he said he's the most <laughs> conservative person in the Indiana caucus, which he may have a point. But if we want to talk about winning in Indiana, winning a primary, again, to Ann's point, excuse me, to Ann's point I think that's, that's the way you do it. Well, I was talking about this with somebody, and let's look at the last couple of Senate primaries in this state where we had open seats for uh, open seats. Todd Young won against the Jim Banks of his time a little bit, Marlon Sussman. Now, Marlon Sussman didn't have quite the name recognition or the national profile, perhaps, that Jim Banks has, maybe not the money either, although he's being backed by some of the same groups. Todd Young easily beat Marlon Sussman. I just looked it up. It was 67-33. Mike Braun when he ran in 2018, was not the Mike Braun that's running for governor now. He was not as moderate as Luke Messer, but not nearly as conservative in that primary as Todd Rokita. He found this middle path, and he, he, he um, did it very successfully. Is going hard right, which Jim Banks has been doing for a while now, is that a, a good play against potentially some heavy hitters that might not be quite that... I would say you, in your research, you needed to go back a little further and look at the defeat of Richard Nick. I mean, of Richard, of Richard Luger, uh, who was outmaneuvered on his right flank, uh, to the surprise of a lot of people. So people some of that was also that he'd been in Washington D.C. Right, hadn't right. Even right. Lived in India, yeah. Well, crying out loud. I that guess was part here's of the that. issue. You, you know, you asked these two folks, and I was hoping you would ask me because the notion of Who's the front runner? And I guess the, the flippant answer is for which election. And obviously, if you look at the calendar, the primary comes first. Yeah, he's well positioned for that for all the reasons that you can read in Politics for Dummies, which is now in what edition? I don't know. Ann's book. Uh, you have to go hard right in primaries or hard left if you're a Democratic candidate. Generally speaking, that's who get, comes, emerges from primaries here or in 49 other states or caucuses. That's just the way it works. If, in fact, we're talking about general election, though, I think Mitch Daniels would clean his clock. Uh, I don't think uh, Jim Banks right now would stand a prayer uh, in Indiana in the general. But, but you got to get be running against Mitch Daniels, right? In the but you got to go, yeah. But you got to go through one before you get to the other. We'll talk a little bit more about Mitch Daniels in a second. But Nikki, even if other folks get in, is Jim Banks the next Republican nominee for U.S. Senate? I don't think you can say yet. Yeah, I, I would be shocked if there weren't at least three candidates who are going to go for an open open seat. Victoria Sparts, Congresswoman Sparts, has obviously said she's interested. And, you know, lover or hater, she's a fighter. She's not mm -hmm. going to sit back and, you know, just let Jim Banks be the heir apparent. So uh, I definitely don't think we know until we see a little bit more of what the field might be. Does this put more pressure on Victoria Sparts if she's going to run to announce soon now? I guess. I, I mean, right now we're starting stuff so yeah. early. Yeah. I, I just love your comment about she's a fighter. Anybody who gets in this race, by definition, is going to be a fighter. There are no shrinking violence right. in this because well, it'll, be, it'll be a bloodbath. And, in fact, we're already seeing this week national media 
Politico, The Hill, and others talking about this being sort of uh, ground zero in a new civil war yeah. within the Republican Party. And, well, I, and I would add, Victoria Sparks would have to get into that camp with Jim Banks on the right, right? Like, yeah. she's, yeah, she's, she's not going to run as a moderate. She's right. gone to be in the moderate. Well, that's when you start so looking about how it breaks. a Republican and, candidate, uh, moderate on the on the, uh, uh, the trajectory like Richard Luger had, maybe you'd have a chance. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Well, mm. speaking <laughs> of which, before the U.S. Senate race even had an official participant, the prominent conservative group Club for Growth made a bid to keep one person out of the race. The organization, led by former Indiana Congressman David McIntosh, released an attack ad against Mitch Daniels. Daniels is reportedly mulling a bid for the Senate seat being vacated by incumbent Mike Braun. Club for Growth, long a fixture in Indiana and national politics, wants to stop it before it starts, pulling no punches. After 50 years of big government, big pharma, and big academia, Mitch Daniels forgot how to fight. An old guard Republican clinging to the old ways of the bad old days. The ad attacks Daniels' record as federal budget director and governor. Longtime Daniels advisor Mark Lubbers told the Indiana Capital Chronicle the ad is a gross distortion and that Daniels' conservative record is crystal clear. Chris, does an ad like this make Mitch Daniels more or less likely to jump into this race? You know, I think anybody that runs for a political office at the statewide level or the federal level um, has to have a heightened sense of competitiveness, has to have a sense of wanting to protect your self-image because, you know, you want obviously the, the constituents to... To, to vote for you. So if I was in his position and I have an attack ad come out on me that A, I haven't even declared yet and B, criticized me for like liking motorcycles, kind of like what the <laughs> ad did. I mean, yeah, it would probably kind of boost me to want to kind of get in, get into the race and prove people wrong. Now, obviously I'm not speaking for Mitch Daniels on that, but one thing I really, that really shocked me about the ad was it attacked him for things that you usually do not hear Mitch Daniels attacked on. Like typically the common criticism is, right, he's not big enough on the social issues. He kind of doesn't jive really well with the social right that wants to, to care more about those issues. So the fact that it just came straight for what is kind of this, you know, this aura of Mitch Daniels, which rightfully so, taking a state from bankruptcy to a triple A credit bond rating. Um, I mean, rightfully so. You can't deny that one. Um, yeah, actually, I can. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to ask you the same question. If you were advising Mitch Daniels, I, d I don't think he's asking, but if, sure you're advising, if you're advising just, Mitch Daniels... It, it just depends, it seems to me, on what he wants out of life. He's done, you know, he's done a lot. And he may just want to say, you know, I'd like to sail off into this or ride my motorcycle off into the sunset. Sure. But on the other hand, you know, if you're Jim Banks and you're looking at this and you're a Republican and you know Mitch Daniels, you ought to stand up if you have one ounce of integrity in that body, and I'm not sure there is, but if there was one ounce, you ought to stand up and say, Club for Growth, pull that in. I don't want to see those kinds of attacks against, against a, Republicans. A future opponent? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and he also ought to get on, the, get on the phone to Steve Bannon and tell him to stop the scurrilous attacks that Steve Bannon's doing on social media about his life. private life if he had one ounce of integrity, but he wants to be in the Senate more than anything else, including the truth. I think it's going to get way bloodier than that. I, I, I agree with that. To that point, Mitch Daniels flirted with a run for president in 2012 as he was being term limited out of uh, the go governor's office. And the general consensus is that a big reason, maybe the reason why he opted not to, is because he didn't want to face the attacks on his family the personal attacks that he was surely going to face. That stuff hasn't changed in the last, you know, decade. 
Is that keep him out of this race? Not only has the stuff not changed, but what civility we had 10 years ago seems to be completely gone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can't tell you the number of bank supporters who have reached out showing me every little thing they think is a negative against Daniels. Oh, look at an old ad where he said it would be the last office he ever ran for. Look at this quote from three years ago where he said this. I mean, they are working hard against someone they know would be the favorite the minute he jumps in. Um, and I, Mark Lubbers, who, who you mentioned in the thing, he said, you know, as a personal friend, I hope Daniels doesn't run because this is going to be awful. But as he said, for his country, he hoped he would run and, quote, bank, beat banks to a pulp. You know, you know that, that gets to the does it make it more or less likely to run um, I also saw a reporting this week that some uh, a source close to Daniel said the second he gets into the race, he'll have $50 million to spend. I think there is a lot of pent-up frustration or anger, uh, and there were probably stronger words, that, that loyal conservative Republicans in the state of Indiana have been simmering inside them for the past 12 years or, or more, uh, essentially since well, let's say eight, let's well, not go back that far, but let's certainly go back at least maybe to some elements of the Pence administration here and then the, the Trump administration in D.C. And I think there is a lot of pent-up frustration. This would be a chance to sort of uh, vent. But, but let me just say this about the ad. It, I think the, the rhetoric is predictable in that it's boilerplate language. You know, who, what do you want to attack somebody who's been around a long time? Corporatized? Sure. Um, big, yeah, big business. Oh, been in, but listen, if you tried to, had to caption that for somebody who hasn't, isn't familiar with this, here's what it would sound like. This is a person who deserves to be booted, cast aside, because he had ties to the largest economic driver in Indiana that's been influential in driving our economy for 100-plus years, Eli Lilly. He is, he's not qualified because he has ties to this institution that happens to be one of our crown jewels in terms of one of our foremost R1 research institutions with Purdue University. I say that as an IU grad, but I certainly respect a good thing when I see it. And you have, and this notion of, Washington. Oh, so Ronald Reagan, the person for whom you served as, as political director and office of management and budget director, must be some horrible person, too. So basically, in that ad that is predictable rhetoric, you have slammed Ronald Reagan, Purdue University, and Eli Lilly and Company. That's the way I would see it. And I, I think, too, that Nikki's right. There is no civility anymore in politics at all. But I think in this state, having personal attacks on his family and his relationship with his family will backfire. I really do. I, I think it, yeah. it, they do that at their own peril. So, And that might be the difference between running for president, where you have to face that on the Everywhere. national airwaves, and not that this race won't get national attention, but nothing like a presidential race does, and doing it in Indiana, where I think I agree with you. I'd like to agree with you that I don't think Hoosiers would appreciate those sorts of personal attacks, but... I've stopped making predictions about politics, so time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question, and this week's question is, who should be the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in 2024? Jim Banks, Mitch Daniels, or someone else? Victoria Sparks certainly on that list. Last week's question, should Indiana provide free textbooks and curriculum materials for all K-12 public and charter students? 85% say yes. 15% say no. Anne is shocked. She thought it was going to be a lot higher. Because you put charter schools in there. There we go. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll.
Speaking of education, Indiana lawmakers are considering a bill that would greatly expand the school choice voucher program. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Violet Comber Weiland reports it would let families receive most of the state funding local public schools would have gotten to educate their child. Currently, low- and middle-income parents who have children with disabilities and choose to leave public school are eligible for thousands of dollars in aid under a state program. The money can be used to pay for special education services. The proposed bill would expand the eligibility of this program to all students. Jenny Whitaker teaches high school math. She says there is no accountability in terms of funding for the bill. The lack of state oversight and the lack of parameters on who can receive this newly created voucher puts the state in a financial risk. There are no limits on who can receive these vouchers. Others testifying for the bill argue the expansion would give families more choices in how they educate their children. Nikki Kelly, where does this lead? Well, and that's the big question. And my frustration listening to that hearing was the author kept saying, there's a $10 million appropriation in the budget. It's only a $10 million program. Hmm. No, you can't create a program that makes every student in the in all of Indiana eligible for this money and then not look at the potential cost down the road of that. That is irresponsible legislating. I and mean, it's, it's the sort of thing that Luke Kenley and Senate Republican leaders said about the original school voucher right. program, not these education savings accounts programs. But they said, you know, when you start that, we're not going to stop at whatever it was at the time. You know, yeah, and looking students. back, the voucher program originally had a cap of 7,500 people. Cost $15 million the first year. Guess what? We're at 44,000 people and $240 million a year. If you want to have the conversation about whether school choice, universal school choice is good, whether through education savings accounts or vouchers, which, by the way, there's no reason to have them both. No. They, they would be the same thing. Uh, you know, that's fair, but at least put all the data on the table, including a true price of what that would mean to the state coffers. So these education savings accounts were created last year. The House wanted to go broader with them, and the Senate said, let's just make it for kids with disabilities who clearly need this money. They started small. It's only a few hundred students, I think. Like, like less than 170 yeah. students. Yeah. And it's now the Senate proposing to blow it wide open. Does that make a lot of sense to you? Uh, I guess I understand the, the politics of it because you do, if you are President Pro Tem or you're someone who's controlling the bill, flow of bills, you have to have a pressure valve. You can't just tell crazy, that every crazy idea has to die in its infancy. You've got to let them be heard. So I get, I get the political machinery at work here. Right. On, its, on a philosophical level, no, it doesn't make sense. Uh, in terms of how the Senate has acted in the, the past. Because I th let's say this essentially is not just an attack on public education. It, it, it would dissolve it for all practical purposes because the whole argument here is let's, it should be fair for students. You know, you should have all these choices. But it's not a level playing field to begin with. If, in fact, private schools want to take public dollars, well, then they need to be subject to the very same standards that public schools are subject to, which means transparency, which means obligations to take all students, not just those that don't have physical limitations or mental limitations. You can't just skim the, t the best off. Uh, you, you've got to have open your doors to, to the people who, you know, all of a sudden it's, your constituents are now the people who live around you because they're the taxpayers who funded this too. Do they want that? Absolutely not. They don't want that. They want the money, but still keep your nose out of it. So it's, it's not a level playing field. There's public education, there's private education, and you, when you blur the lines, it, it doesn't make sense. How do you sell this to, I mean, 
even if you opened up, e even if this program were created and eventually down the road it was opened up to, as it is in the bill right now, literally everyone who wants it, yeah. there aren't enough places in, public, in private schools in this state to, ho to house all of the people who might want to take part in this program. You're still going to have the vast, 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 vast majority of students in Indiana educated in public schools, which means their parents and their neighbors are the ones paying for those public schools. How do you sell this to Republicans who generally support school choice? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the mecca for the, the, the school choice folks, right? I mean, you're literally, this is even more expansive than the, the, the choice scholarship program just because you're literally saying not only do we give you this money to go to a private school of your choice, it could also be used for homeschooling. It could be used for online tutoring. It could be used for textbooks, which seem to be popular these days. So I think the, the flexibility is really what they're going to be trying to, to preach to the other people of, hey, this is different than the school choice over here. This is expanding even more options for parents, giving them even more options for their students. And I'm interested to see what happens with this because obviously Senator Jim Roth, the, the chairman of the committee, said amendments are coming. And I think a lot of the testimony opened it up to, yeah, this because this is opening it up to so many people, there is not a lot of oversight in this committee as of now. It's through the treasurer's office. Um, so I, I, I think um, not only are you at the mercy of the budget creators and the and the budget committees, but also when that when that bill goes to those committees, it's going to be open to amendments there as well to for the for them to tweak it as they please. I don't think anybody would be surprised to know that you don't like this idea. Um, so let me ask you a more specific question about this proposed bill. Let's just take it at its face and say it really is just a ten million dollar program. Right now, the way it's written. It's first come, first serve. So, I mean, if it's meant to be for people who need, have educational needs that are not being met by their public schools, and we want to get them the help that they need with support from the state that they deserve, that isn't in the bill. It's if I'm making thirty-five million dollars a year and I just sign and up I first, I'm going to get some. I'm going to get some money from the state. I can do that. I mean, yeah. it, it, at, at, well, at the very minimum, does does the program need to be cons like addressed from look, that angle in the short term? For students with disabilities, whether they're mental or physical, IUP, uh, uh, Indianapolis Public Schools has been the mecca. They do the best job, and they have a disproportionate number of those students because of that. But the question of whether you, you need additional services for special needs kids aside, I'm, I am in favor of providing those. This, as I understand it, gives the money to the parents. Okay, So it's not tied to an institution at all, which is a huge expansion. Every other choice dollar goes to some place in existence. Where's the accountability? The parent takes the money, says, hey, junior, get online there and figure out how to teach yourself math or English or whatever it is. And, and how do we test those kids? What, what, what happens to those kids? I mean, it is absolutely crazy. We're supposed to, how many years did we spend in this state trying to test students yeah. so that we could judge how they were doing. And now we're just blowing it all and up. And to say that it's revenue neutral, if we get to the point, and I know that's a leap from this particular bill, which has the $10 million price tag, but if it is truly the money follows the student, you can't say, even if you didn't have $10 million more, you could just say, well, it's revenue neutral because it's the same amount of money, Go, it's just going to be redistributed. No, it doesn't work that it's way not. because how do schools – Keep the lights on, and and you have right. to pay the, 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 the cost. The cost for the building doesn't go down. No, because and to have the or for the teachers or the teachers because you students. need the special needs, you need the right. speech therapists, you need the counselors, you need the nurses. It just doesn't work that way. And anybody who thinks it is needs and to go back to, be to school. Clear, 
I don't think anyone's saying it's revenue neutral I know, in an overall sense. They're saying it shouldn't well, hurt public education. Which Certainly is, not which revenue is, neutral when you have 43,000 current education? private school kids not on vouchers who would be eligible for that. That's more than $300 million yeah. right there. Yeah, to your point, I do think that in the bill it said that any student that receives this money would be subject to the I-Learn requirements. So that's one way I think they can track it. But like okay, I said, so I, what I would, happens when they fail? I would be shocked if this bill continues to move without more, without more oversight. Yeah. The future of abortion rights in Indiana is now in the hands of the state's five Supreme Court justices. The court heard arguments this week in a lawsuit challenging Indiana's near-total abortion ban. Abortion care providers want the court to find that the Indiana Constitution's right to liberty includes a right to abortion. Some of the justices, including the newest, Derek Moulter, pushed back on that, wondering if such a ruling would be too broad. Is there a point in the pregnancy, for example, where the General Assembly is allowed by our Constitution to... Uh, take away the right to terminate a pregnancy if it's not necessary to protect the life or health of the woman. The providers argue Indiana's previous law banning abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy would be acceptable. The justices pushed back against some of the state's arguments, too. Justice Christopher Goff, for instance, focused on a part of the ban that forces abortion clinics to shut down entirely, not even allowed to perform abortions that would remain legal. So if someone of limited means uh, wanted to go and have access to a procedure to save her life, uh, and she couldn't, isn't that problematic? The court gave no timetable for its ruling. John Schwannis is asking this court to read into the Indiana Constitution a right that isn't explicitly written there a bad bet. Well, I think we should give the court some credit for understanding that society changes, some creativity for notion. No, I mean, they don't have to be strict literalists in terms of the wording, and we have evidence that they're not. Uh, because it wasn't too many years ago that the court, including a number of the current uh, justices, said that Article One, uh, Section 6 of Indiana's Constitution, which says no public funds mm -hmm. should be taken from the state's treasury to go to schools mm -hmm. that are religious or theoretical, and uh, I mean, not theoretical, well, theological, maybe theoretical too, uh, that that's explicit. And obviously they weren't strict literalists or constructionists, because okay if they had, the they wouldn't have school choice yeah. now. So let's give them credit. All right. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Chris Mitchum, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. You can find Indiana Week in Review's podcast and episodes at wfyi.org slash iwir or on the PBS video app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana Week. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana's public broadcasting stations.